Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It's a good amount of time this morning with Adam Posen of the Peterson Institute. He has taken over from Fred Bergsten, brought in all sorts of uh, top-flight talent, including Olivia Blanchard of the IMF and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Dr. Posen, good morning. 18 things to speak to you about. Let me start with Europe, because I know David wants to get to American uh, <laughs> economics as, as well. You are a congenital optimist. Can you be optimistic on Italy clearing its social and political psyche and markets? I'm a congenital optimist, Mr. Keene, with low expectations. <laughs> there you go. So I'm always satisfied. Um, I think Italy can clear this mess in the banking system. I think Italy can continue to be aggressive about its fiscal situation, as it has been running a primary surplus for quite some time. I think getting Italy beyond that into a growing, vital, lively economy is a much harder task. I mean, David, this is a critical issue. Joe Stiglitz, among others, taking a basic, uh, frankly, Blanchard-like equation, and in the denominator, David Gurry, is this strange little G. Uh-huh. And if the little G doesn't go, the rest of the equation <laughs> doesn't matter. That's all there is to it. Let me bring it to, to the U.S. as, as Tom promised and, and, and Dr. Posen. Uh, I wonder if we are any closer to having a definition of what Trumponomics is. I think we are. Um, we can always hope it changes, both in the sense that what it is isn't very good and in the sense that every president shouldn't be stuck with accusations of hypocrisy when we want them to learn and adapt. But Trumponomics right now seems to have several components. And the, the key guiding philosophy is that it's actually a very arbitrary interventionist for economics. It's far from conservative, far from market. Whether it's in trade deals, they're trying to target particular deals about particular countries on a bilateral basis and particular industries. Whether it's deregulating specific industries in specific ways like they plan to do with energy, including coal. Whether it's a tax code that's designed to favor specific groups of people like people with large inheritances. I mean, it is it is a economics that either genuinely believes or rationalizes such behavior as better outcomes than letting either the market work or having general economic principles. And most economists uh, don't buy it. Is it something wholly new or can you trace its evolution to, to other schools of economics? Um, you can, I'm about to say something that, that <laughs> is going to sound more political than I mean it to be. It is not dissimilar from what 
Peron did in Argentina or Mussolini did in Italy or various more recent Latin American populist movements did in the 70s, 80s, 90s. My colleague at Peterson Institute, thanks, Tom, for the shout-out, Monica Debola just wrote a very provocative essay for us that's gotten a lot of play taking lessons from the crack-up in Brazil over the last few years where they used the uh, BNDES national bank as a piggy bank for particular projects and crony capitalism. Uh, we've seen something similar occasionally in Asia, Indonesia before the, the economic crisis in 97. I mean, again, I, I'm not trying to just put labels on things, but when you have a government that is committed to targeting specific industries, deals, businesses through individual deal-making by the people in power, even if you don't accuse them of corruption, you are distorting the economic system. When you look at, at this infrastructure package uh, that, that's been floated, hasn't been proposed but it's been floated, do you, do you think that it's too late to have a debate over its, its merits and efficacy, or are we well past that? No, no. I think it's absolutely the right time to have a debate about it. It hasn't gone to Congress yet, and I hope that Speaker Ryan and the leadership on both sides of the aisle gives us a constructive debate. I mean, broadly speaking, the idea that there is a huge load of infrastructure to be done in the U.S., that we haven't kept up with needs and that there could be job benefits from doing so yeah. in an environment of low interest rates is something I think almost everybody right. can agree on. The question is how much of the money is spent on things that are – targeted, that are finite, that involve maintenance yeah. and rebuilding, as my colleague Olivier Blanchard has said, versus how many things are handouts to private sector people mm. who were going to do projects anyways right. and you just subsidize the projects they're doing. It's also a question of how much productivity gain you get out the other end. And, you know, some it, right. you're never going to get a winner on every project, no. but you want to have a portfolio of projects that's broadly conducive no. to productivity gains. Well, and that remains to be debated and specified. Feld joins us. He's the CEO of NASDAQ, uh, head of an event this morning at the Council on Foreign Relations. He'll be speaking with our editor-in-chief, uh, John Micklethwaite, about the, the effects of uh, the U.S. presidential election, the, the Brexit referendum, and, and all of that on, on markets. So let's start there, and, and with all the volatility uh, we've seen, uh, is this the new normal, uh, the, the volatile markets we've been seeing? Well, I think we've been through a period of time of depressed volatility, so I think the new normal would be back to what I would call normal. So we expect volatility to be higher than it has been for the last three to four years. What uh, you, know, you, you look at the Brexit referendum, you look at what we, we've seen here after the U.S. presidential uh, election. Telegraph for us what you think investors are, are, are thinking or what they were thinking on election night. Well, I think what was impressive to me is the market quickly realized that they had elected a pro-business president. So you had the emotion associated with other issues that quickly went to the background and said, OK, we have now a president who wants to be pro-business, and the market responded accordingly. Now, I also think the market responded intelligently in that certain stocks did particularly well, uh, you know, better than the market, recognizing where the pro-business policies might lead us. It wasn't long after the election that you saw on the transition team's website their first priority, the first First thing they posted was about uh, their desire to do away with with Dodd Frank. 
What is the regulatory landscape? What does that terrain look like uh, once Donald Trump becomes president? Well, I believe when Donald Trump becomes president, you'll see a period of refinement as opposed to replacement. So clearly Dodd-Frank has many areas that need improvement, and hopefully the focus is on that. But like anything else, there's parts of it that are fine, parts of it are okay or good, and hopefully that stays. Tick through a few of those, if you would. You, you've watched this unfold. You've watched the implementation of that law through the rule writing and the votes and the, the, the more rule writing. What should stay in your mind? What's worked well and what are the deficits as you see them? Well, I would say anything that brings transparency to markets is good, right? As NASDAQ, we believe in transparent markets. So you saw increased transparency in the market. Anything that restricts liquidity coming into the markets, we put in the bad category. So you have different rules, Volcker and others, that really hamper the bank's ability to support and really make the markets more deep and, and liquid. What's your relationship been like thus far with uh, with the president-elect, with the transition team? I imagine they are curious about uh, what you and others think should happen uh, come January 20th. Well, I think they're very busy and not so much focused on where the exchanges are right now. But I think that will be uh, an increased topic is some of the, you know, what I call the headline appointments and uh, or issues are put to bed. Is the, is the relationship between New York... Uh, other financial capitals in Washington better than it had been, or is that that geographic divide uh, still something that needs to be overcome? I, I think it somewhat needs to be overcome. I mean, we definitely had a period, uh, we've been through a period of time where everything's been centered around uh, Washington, and us in the financial center in New York is seen as somewhat the big evil. Uh, so hopefully we'll enter a time where you have a more productive working relationship with the policymakers down in Washington. Bob, I see Hunter Maritime Acquisition which I guess was an IPO that the NASDAQ did a week or so ago. And I don't want to nail you on it because it's all the detail here. I don't really don't understand. It's a bulk dry shipping thing. And that the exchanges and the markets are driven, it seems, by ETFs and by closed-end funds and all that. Are they your friend or enemy at the NASDAQ? Do, do financial engineered instruments get in the way of a better market in a better marketplace? I, I don't believe so. Uh, so certainly you see the rise of passive investing. I think that trend line will continue. Uh, I think you'll see a greater acceleration of what we call smart beta, that is passive, uh, passively managed with some degree of intelligence to that. So I think that's represented a innovation in the marketplace. I think has served investors uh, very well. But the lifeblood of the market still is operating companies that come to market, IPOs that come to market, and obviously are established companies as they continue to grow. There was a period of time when I was talking with our IPO reporter here, Alex Barinka, and she was desperately hoping there would be some IPO action. We, we, we had a bit of a lull there for a while. What's, what's the outlook for companies going public? Well, I, I would say 2016 is a year of quality. Mm. So if you look at the IPOs that have come public this year, certainly they're down. We've had 85, so it's not non-existent. We've had 85 IPOs this year, but they're up 40-something percent. Uh, since the IPO date, and that's different. Those shares you gave us were great. Do you know, you know, anything. The twins. Do you know that, that your twins, your twins are all blind trusted with Bob Greifield. There we go. We're, your, your we, shares. We, we aim to please Tom, so we're we're pleasing. So we've we've seen quality, and I believe that the quality of the IPOs in a given year is a predictor of the quantity of the IPOs in the following year. So I think 2017, based on the quality this year, will be a strong year for IPOs, and we do see the calendar picking up, the backlog picking up. Obviously, external events can change that, but if you look at yeah. it today, we sense some building momentum. As you talk to, to executives at companies considering going public, what's the biggest hurdle still 
Is it uncertainty? What, what are they? What are they saying to you as they as they weigh that decision to go public? Well, one is you have to have structural reasons why you should go public, and uh, you should not be focused on the particular openings of the windows or not. Right? We tend to focus then on the week or two before. But you know, do you need uh, currency to make acquisitions? You need to provide liquidity for employees. You need liquidity to grow. Those are the real reasons why you should come uh, uh, come public. Yeah. One of the reasons you stopped by today was to talk about technology mm. and the idea of where it is. Let's bring it to the Nasdaq. How, what's the next next for the exchanges in technology, particularly wrapped around dovetailing equity markets into derivative markets? Yeah, I, I would say this. When we think about ourselves, we think of ourselves as a technology company, and we're spending a lot of time, effort, and money with respect to machine learning, uh, big data. Uh, not so much artificial intelligence, but close to it. So you're seeing the ability of machine learning to really change the nature of how work is produced in financial services. So we're on translate. That, that was the record jargon alert for November, yes. right there. What translate that for us? Please? I'm going to try, Tom. I'm going to try as hard as I can. So the uh, low hanging fruit we have is a surveillance. So right now there's so much activity going on in the marketplace and we have tools today that recognize patterns and say, okay, this pattern looks like something suspicious might be happening. There are so many false positives in those patterns. Right. So now we want to put machine intelligence to that. So, okay, right. based upon what I've learned in a right. dynamic fashion, this is not a positive, this is a negative, and then isolate down to the things and, that should and, be focused on. And machine intelligence means a Bloomberg terminal, right? Oh, definitely. <laughs> okay. The wanna... top of every pyramid. <laughs> David, <laughs> David you have been incredibly acquisitive over these last few years, acquiring uh, exchanges and other companies. Do you expect more of that to continue here as, as you look to become more focused on technology? We do. We have two types of acquisitions. The one that we focus on are those that really add to our core business. So if you, we've done four acquisitions so far this year and they were businesses that we're in and then we have obviously expense synergies associated with it and it strengthens our strengthens our market positions in markets we've chosen to be leading competitors in so yes we'll yeah. expect that to continue robert greifeld with nasdaq of course thank you so much Bob. appreciate really your time great greatly greatly uh, appreciate it as well who you put your trust in matters Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. George Borey is in charge of uh, medication at Wells Fargo, head of credit <laughs> strategy. Um, how bad is it, George? How much blood is on the street? Or, or is it really a non-event, what we've seen the last, uh, I'll call it, 20 days? Good morning, everyone. Uh, well, there's been quite a bit of blood. Um, if you look at total returns across fixed income, they're down. They're down markedly. If you own a diversified treasury yeah. fund, you're down almost 4% on the quarter. Uh, and that's a pretty healthy loss for folks that are really not expecting a lot of losses. And the same can be said for you know high-quality bonds, the ones that are most closely attached or most closely uh, linked uh, to that sort of government-like risk. But uh, as you go further down the spectrum, as you go 
towards more risk. So yeah. in areas like high yield, the high yield bond market's down a quarter of a percent. It's still negative, and people don't want negative returns. Right. But a quarter of a percent is not that bad in the world of bonds when the highest quality right. bond is down almost 4%. David, and, that, and that kind of gives people yeah. some solace. David, good morning to Jack Vogel, Vanguard. I just use folks as a proxy, the Vanguard Total Bond Market Fund, down 3.7%. David, down 13% annualized from that third week of August where you used my vacation days. <laughs> just, just focus in here. You mentioned Mr. Vogel, Tom, and I, I wonder, uh, George, sort of how the institutional investor is playing this, looking at what we're seeing in the spreads. So institutional investors, they like higher yields. So, you know, if you're a pension fund or if you're an insurance company, you're actually thankful that, that yields are moving higher. You've probably harbored a lot of cash, and you've been waiting for this moment. And so we've seen institutional investors actually start to buy the market. It's really the retail investor, the folks, the folks that maybe had money in a cash account or a money market account and have been slowly creeping out what we'd call the risk spectrum or now looking at some negative returns in their portfolio. And they've actually started to pull money out of, uh, out of mutual funds and even out of some of the ETFs. So there's, there's a little bit of a battle, if you will, going on between the institutional okay. investor and the retail well, investor. Well explained, but help me here. The institutional pros got cash, 4 7%, whatever. They start putting it to work. I get that. But aren't they marking to a 12 31 16 loss or decline in their portfolio? Uh, not yet. Not yet. Okay, Full-year returns, full returns are, still, uh, are still strongly positive, both in, okay. the, in, in, in the world of, of corporate bonds, at least. Uh, Treasury is a little bit less so. Um, and 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 the addition, the other the other sort of thing to consider, an institutional investor does tend to have a slightly long. We're all short-term investors at the end of the day, but they do tend to have a longer-term uh, horizon <laughs> or profile. So a, a life insurance company yeah. you know, is matching liabilities against long-dated um, uh, investments, so they can take a slightly longer-term um, right. uh, time horizon. Not everyone can do it, but some can. What's your, your outlook here, George, for, for volatility and credit spreads? When do you think they're going to start to tighten? Well, credit spreads themselves have actually started to tighten. Um, in, in, again, in, in, it, at the higher end of the rating spectrum, where you're very closely linked to treasuries, they've tightened a bit, you know, call it five to ten basis points. Uh, and, and, and that's kind of to be expected as, as, as negative returns kind of force people out of the asset class. Spreads will only tighten a little bit. So what we would say, they're, they're grinding tighter. But in the world of, of high yield, where your spreads can be anywhere from four to five to 600 basis points above a typical treasury, those spreads can move much further. Uh, and they also tend to be kind of shorter in duration, so further, further down the, uh, the maturity spectrum. And we've actually seen high yield spreads you know, come in 30, 40, 50 basis points. And I think there's plenty of potential for that to continue into next year. And you, you, the, the point about kind of institutional versus retail, I think, is critically important. The institutional investor base is bigger than the retail institutional base, but they just move more slowly. They're more disciplined in the sense that they have very specific investment requirements. So we're, we're optimistic that credit spreads should do well. Um, they're going to be volatile. When you have negative returns in the asset class, there's a lot of movement of money. But over time, credit spreads right. should, should tighten as yields go do you, up. 
Do you have a 10-year yield equivalent to where retail says I can't take any more price decline? If we hit 2.40 or 2.50 or 2.70, do you begin to see a lot of selling? So that's a great question. Um, historically, about a, neg- a, a negative return of about 3% over a three-month period, so it's, it's very easy to remember, negative three over three months, tends to start the yep. flow of money out of the asset class. And that's exactly what's happened this time around. Are we seeing it yet? Yep, we've seen about okay. right now. Uh, you're running uh, uh, roughly, let's call it about a billion dollars a week is coming out of credit okay. funds. George Borey with us with Wells Fargo. That's exceptionally important, folks. I can't say enough, folks, how the street and the media and certainly Bloomberg surveillance quotes yield, quotes yield, quotes yield. And there's a point where yields go up and all of a sudden everybody, David Gurra, is looking at their sheet going, what's the price of that? I <laughs> David Gurra here with Tom Keen on Bloomberg Surveillance. We're talking with George Borey, head of credit strategy at Wells Fargo, and we have yet to talk about the presidential transition and the effect that may have here uh, on the credit space. Uh, give, us a, give us your sense of what that looks like, George. So I think the uh, the new administration has the potential to uh, to really I think help credit conditions. Um, if uh, there's a big if that hangs all uh, hangs over this, but if you know if you're go- if you're going to see an increase in in government spending and a loosening in uh, regulatory uh, constraints on certain industries, particularly in places like maybe healthcare as well as energy, uh, and in addition to that, you get you get tax cuts. You know that has the potential to be very stimulative uh, for. Uh, for the U.S. economy, I think that trickle-down effect to corporates could be very powerful. And uh, the trends we've seen over the past couple of years is companies have been really levering up their balance sheet. They're borrowing a lot of money to buy back stock to offset a very slow and sluggish growth backdrop. If we were to see an, a little bit of an uptick in, in growth, in top-line growth, in earnings, uh, sorry, in sales, um, that could be a very powerful um, positive for, for companies and companies' creditworthiness. So we're encouraged uh, going into next year, um, you know, for, for the corporate sector. And what does that mean for, for mergers and acquisitions? If, if, if we see Trumponomics, as we're, we're thinking we're going to see again, they're, they're, we're short on details here. Uh, what does yeah. that mean for M&A activity? So M and A has been been very robust over the past couple of years. The lower for longer or the low rate structure has encouraged companies to consolidate cons- uh, and, and industries to consolidate. Used a lot of uh, relatively cheaply uh, borrowed money to to fuel that M and A. You know, you've had well over a trillion dollars of of closed M and A each year last year and this year. Um, the prospect of more growth, I think, actually accelerates that trend. Um, you know, you have industries like uh, like the commu- the broader communications industries, the consumer staples industries, uh, energy, healthcare. They're relatively fragmented, and if there's an emphasis on domestic growth, which is what the uh, the, the Republican agenda seems to to want to emphasize, then within our country, there's. There's, tr- there's plenty of potential for, for some of these industries to, to see in-market consolidation. We think you could get back to sort yeah. of an, an all-time high in, in M&A um, as, as we go into next year. Again, George Borey with us as we look at yield up price um, down. What do you do with duration now? Somebody walks into Wells Fargo, they got their pot of money. Do you ladder into a portfolio? Do you, I love this. John Tucker, help me. Do you barbell? <laughs> is that, the barbell, barbell strategy. Do you pile it all into 80-year Austrian paper? What do you do? <laughs> 
Well, I think you. I, I think as you, as you point out, if you're an individual coming in, I think I think the laddering strategy makes a lot of sense. I think the emphasis should be on shorter duration, so shorter maturity profiles. Uh, rates have gone up materially, so there are more attractive yields uh, as you go out along the yield curve. But our expectation is those yields should continue to go up. And as we just mentioned, there's a big if hanging uh, over uh, you know a lot of decisions right now, but if if the government is going to be much more aggressive in its borrowing and spending strategies, that tends to push yields up over time. So we would be a little bit more conservative out at the, the longer end of the curve. But shorter duration profiles, especially in the world of corporate bonds like, like high yield, um, make a lot of sense. The, the average yield on, on a high yield fund is, is roughly about six and a half, maybe as high as seven percent, depending on the fund. And those durations, the maturity profile, tends to be between, say, two and five years. So you will, you will earn a lot of income that can offset both the price volatility as well as p- some potential decline in, in, in some of the prices. So over time, you'll still, you'll still generate a, a, a meaningfully positive return despite the fact that, that yields more broadly are going up. So I, I think that's actually not, not a bad place to, uh, to put your money right now. You sticking with investment grade right now? Are you looking at high yield? What about uh, that difference? We like high yield over investment grade for that exact reason. High yield, number one, as it states, it's got a much higher yield at, you know, call it six and a half percent. It's got a shorter maturity profile. And importantly, the companies that make up the world of high yield are very domestically focused. And we think that's an important yeah. distinction. The investment grade world tends to be much more global and international in scope. It also has a much longer duration, so more like a 10-year maturity. And the average yield on an investment grade fund is, is roughly about 3.4%. So there, there's some very big differences. And, and if you're an individual, I think you want the, the, the higher yield, the shorter duration. And the U.S. emphasis. George, thank you so much. George Borey, Wells Fargo. Thank you, guys. The reality of price lower yields higher as well. To speak to our global audience and those of you worldwide, you have to see it to believe it. I was on, I think, 56th Street over on Madison trying to get to the suit store, the good people at Oxford clothes who make my suits, and I couldn't get there. I was blocked. And a police officer said, where are you going? This is behind the Trump Tower. I said, I want to go to Oxford clothes, and they let me through. But that's how much it took me to get through the door. Mortimer Singer knows a lot about traffic. He's with Traub, of course, iconic in New York retailing but with just a terrific experience of the grind of retail. Mort Singer, thrilled to have you on. Have you ever seen anything like what Midtown Retail is going through right now? Uh, well, first of all, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, hi, Tom. Um, I have not, and um, I'm particularly conscious of Tiffany, uh, of Gucci, and of Abercrombie & Fitch that are immediately uh, adjacent to, and in Gucci's case, inside Trump Tower. Uh, and I think, in fact, it's closed uh, and during the holiday season. So you can imagine what that's doing for, yeah. for those three companies. I mean, to give you an idea, folks, Mort Singer is vice chairman of the French Institute Alliance Francaise, which is like three streets above all this madness. Tiffany's out with earnings today. 
says there has been an effect. Do you think it will be folded into other companies' retail reports? Oh, I think in particular um, Abercrombie, that's a big store for them. Um, and that Gucci store is not insignificant either. Uh, but then if you, the, the sort of the blast radius of this goes down Fifth Avenue and up as well. So um, it'll be interesting to see uh, w- what they say. Astonishing for me, Mort Singer, to walk down Fifth Avenue, look at these stores, look at these flagship stores and see the amount of money that's been poured into making them uh, what they are today. What are these companies to do in light of what they're seeing with regard to security? Well, I, w- I was hoping, uh, I was talking about it just y- yesterday, actually, regarding business interruption insurance and whether this qualifies. Uh, these companies are spending you know, upwards of $1,000 a foot to build out these locations. Not only that, they have to, uh, they have to pay rent that, uh, you know, on the ground floor. It can reach $2,000 a foot. So uh, it, they're really marketing engines. And if you don't get the eyeballs to, uh, within the vicinity to see those billboards, it's not just about retail sales. About, it's about being a billboard to send people to your website. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough proposition. So we'll have to see how the security concerns actually affect uh, Upper Fifth Avenue because it's a, it's a real uh, mecca for commerce in this city. It's about getting people to the website, you say, and I, I think this bears explanation. We hear so much talk uh, in other parts of the retail sector about how there's a movement from brick-and-mortar stores to the online space. When you're looking at high-end retail, is that simply not happening, and is it not going to happen? Or are these stores going to continue to be as important as they have been? Oh, I think you will see absolutely uh, a big migration. In fact, the online luxury online um, sales are set to double by 2020. Uh, there are many marketplaces like Orchard Mile and Farfetch and List uh, who are <clears throat> activating uh, e-commerce for luxury brands, um, and that's going to continue. I think that also um, you know, they've been a little slow, frankly, the luxury brands, in getting up to speed with the rest of the industry on this because they felt that e-commerce – uh, by definition, was somewhat uh, too broad uh, a distribution. Uh, now they're seeing that e-commerce is about service, so uh, they're all deciding that they need to get on the bandwagon. So it's going to be increasingly yeah. important, and we're seeing it happen a lot. What are you watching for this retail season? What is the distinctive feature as we dive into December? Well, mobile. You know, mo- mobile traffic uh, has now, uh, for the first time, um, been the, the major door for digital. It used to be obviously desktop. It's now no longer the case. Uh, in fact, even at um, the Thanksgiving table, I mean, people, 30% of consumers said they were shopping at Thanksgiving table. I'm talking <laughs> mobile. How rude. Mobile, wait, 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 stop there. So that's what my kids were doing. Yes, that's what they were doing. When you said, I want another bow tie, Tom, they said they would get it under the table and, and you know, periwinkle. <laughs> so you know, they were doing happening. anything to avoid talking uh, to you, actually, <laughs> you. is what they were doing. Mort Singer, they're, they're, Mr. Tucker has the correct analysis as well. In the midst of the retail season, always good to speak with Mortimer Singer, Chief Executive Officer of Traub. We've been talking about Trump Fifth Avenue, the president-elect. Now we turn to the real war that's going on. Uh, in case you didn't know this, David, DVF has the DVF Vieira lace dress, $498. You can't get it at Bloomingdale's. You can't. You have to go to the meatpacking there, place. You've got to go to the DVF store. Which we've done to the, light, <laughs> to the lightning of our wallet. Mort, this is serious stuff. Coors, Michael Coors, Coach, DVF have just said enough to the department stores. Are they going to have any dresses to sell in five years? 
Well, look, at the end of the day, this is a double-edged sword. I mean, everyone's got to balance brand equity against uh, chasing a P&L. And those things are obviously uh, sometimes at odds. Uh, brand equity, meaning preserving one's, one's image and, and brand and therefore discounting, maybe being at odds with that. But obviously, the department store channel is a huge driver of business. And I would say in most cases, still the largest single channel for anybody. Um, and therefore, you know, being somewhat emotional about what discounting means to the consumer, which is effectively, um, you know, something that they expect, something that they uh, look for. Um, you know, the consumer will, will jump around. And so uh, the brands are trying to obviously reconcile their pricing. That's absolutely normal. They have their own channels of distribution. They have their own retail stores, obviously, now, too. It's not just the department stores that they depend on. So they're trying to exert some control, and, and that's understandable. Given that, uh, will we have department stores in two, five, ten years? Absolutely, we will have department stores. These, these entities have the most powerful and important real estate in the major cities in this country and around the world. Uh, the, the model might shift somewhat from what's called an own-bought model, which is the, um, when you buy at wholesale and sell at retail, to maybe more of a blend of concession, which is effectively shopping shops or leasing shops within department stores, which is yeah. uh, effect- effectively what happens uh, in Europe and in Asia. Uh, the American model has predominantly been own-bought. So um, I think that the department stores are shifting uh, the way they, they, they work. They're obviously uh, going to leverage that real estate because you know many of these, these department stores uh, hold that real estate, either leased or owned, at about 3% uh, of, of revenue. If you want to open a store on a street, your occupancy cost will be about 15%. So there's a wonderful arbitrage there on occupancy cost. And uh, they just right. have to leverage the brands uh, and get them into yeah. the stores. That was brilliantly explained about the difference in real estate cost between the owned shop and being in a department store. If I look at this then, do you just assume fewer stores, a given Saks, a given Bloomingdale's? I mean, Bird Bergdorf, I guess there is one store, but is it just going to be fewer stores? Is Bergdorf Goodman way out front on where we're going? Well, well, think about it. Bergdorf is owned by Neiman Marcus. Neiman Marcus is going to open their first New York City store. So same group, same city uh, at Hudson Yards in two years. Uh, if you had told me five years ago that there'd be four new department stores opened in New York City by 2020, Saks, Nordstrom, Barney's, uh, and a Neiman Marcus, I would have probably told you you were wrong, and I would have been wrong. Uh, and it's because cities are the most important thing today. I mean, the power of anchor gateway cities like New York, London, Paris, Shanghai, um, people are doubling down in those cities, as other department stores and as other big brands, which is why, you know, the Fifth Avenue rents, notwithstanding the, uh, the issues on Upper Fifth, uh, are, are where they are. I mean, they're at all-time highs, softening a little bit, but nonetheless, uh, incredibly high. Help me understand the aspirational reach of high-end retail. I I think of what you've been saying about department stores, about the the migration to the online space. I would think I'd be more likely to go into a department store and buy a a pair of Gucci loafers. I know Tom is more comfortable going into the store itself, but it seems like I would be willing to do that. I'd be willing to do it online more so than to go into a boutique where I'm going to have to deal with or interact with, you know, four or five uh, uh, sales personnel in the store. Do high-end retailers like the fact that they, they have some aspirational reach to people who may not be at high-end retailers all the time? Well, I think you just articulated it incredibly eloquently because if you think about um, what you just said, uh, there are horses for courses, and some people prefer the more approachable 
uh, environment of a department store. They get uh, special points for their loyalty. Uh, they can use those points for experiences or discounts. Uh, and it's, uh, there's, and in some cases, there are more uh, approachable sales staff. Um, in, in a boutique, um, I would say that it's um, somewhat different. It's more intimidating. It's a little bit more um, uh, sort of... Uh, uh, an environment that is somewhat more daunting because of the build-out, uh, and therefore it, imp- it imposes luxury and quality and therefore price. The assumption is this looks very expensive, uh, therefore I'd rather go somewhere else. And I think that the, the channels uh, live together and should flourish together because at the end of the day, everyone talks about omni-channel, but it's really uni-channel. It's, it's one pipe of commerce, and it, some customers prefer it in one place and some in another. What will Amazon do next year from where you sit with Traub and consulting to all of retail? What would you suggest as Amazon's retail fashion ploy, if you will, for next year? Amazon is making strides into this space. It's something that's eluded them. I doubt that they will be able to do it um, with their own name, but that said, they're plumbing, their infrastructure is second to none in this country when it comes to uh, e-commerce, digital marketing, the reach of their prime customer that's an affluent uh, customer as well. Um, And I believe that they will be able to, and I I expect them to over time, uh, bolt on acquisitions that will be, uh, have the the face or or the skin of, of a different brand, but be powered by uh, by Amazon, mm-hmm. and I, I, I would not be surprised if that would have happened. Mort Singer, thank you so much. Wisdom on retail here as we dive into the season. David Gurr, I mean, I, this has your name on it, the DVF Heaven Wrap Gown. Mm, that's how she heaven made her is, name. Heaven is spelled H-E-A-V-Y-N, which means uh-huh. your wallet will be lightened. <laughs> the DVF Heaven, H-E-A-V-Y-N. $998. You know, I was at the Allen Company conference in Sun Valley. Diane von Furstenberg was there. She opened a pop-up store, and I could not bring myself to go in, despite the lure of uh, the, the the head of the brand herself and the free champagne. She but had a I, pop-up store a at pop-up the conference? A pop-up store at the, at the conference, and it was, uh, it was well attended. She brought in uh, a ton of clothes and a ton of, of people to, to wear them and sell them. We like to do it. Thank you to Mort Singer. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.